podcast you're about to hear is true. The names have not been changed to protect the innocent, the guilty, or anyone else. If you're interested in the same type of discussion related to organized crime that you hear in the traditional media, stop listening now. If you're interested in thinking differently or learning something, turn up the volume on your computer, smartphone, or mobile device. This is The Racket Report. Here's Frank Morano. Welcome to the Racket Report. This is the podcast which delves inside the world of organized crime. Not just La Cosa Nostra, but the Chicago outfit, the mob, and all the areas where they intersect and where they differ. We have a real treat for you today. We have Gary Jenkins, who is a former intelligence unit detective with the Kansas City Police Department. He's also been a producer of four documentaries, creator of a mob. Mob Tour app, author of several books, and uh, I could take a few notes from him because he is the host of one of the most popular true crime podcasts in the nation called Gangland Wire Crime Stories. If there's one criticism of this podcast, I think maybe it's that we've tended to be a little too parochial and focus a little bit on the New York area. Well, today we're going to take a look at the wild, wild world of Kansas City, and I'm very pleased to welcome Gary Jenkins. Gary, it's great to talk with you. Thanks for joining me. It's great to be on your show, and I really appreciate you having me on. Gary, give folks an idea. I described you as an intelligence unit detective with the Kansas City Police Department. Give folks an idea of what your career was like in law enforcement. How long did you serve? When? What kind of work did you do? Well, I served for 25 years. I did uh, I did just about everything, but I spent the majority of my time in the intelligence unit. Uh, I think 14 out of 25 years I was in the intelligence unit. Besides that, I, of course, I was in patrol. I was a fraud unit sergeant. I, uh, I had a uh, SWAT team, tactical response team. I, uh, I worked in community policing at the very end. And so uh, just everything across the board, but mainly working intelligence. Tell me about, and we're going to jump around a little bit because you've done so much in the journalistic area in chronicling mafiadom, uh, but uh, your podcast, Gangland Wire, has gotten a, n- a number of uh, stories written about it. You've done some really compelling podcasts that I've listened to, and people should check them out. Tell me about your decision to launch the Gangland Wire podcast. What made you decide to wake up one day and tell these mob stories? Well, uh, another thing I did after I left the police department, I was only 51 when I retired. I went to the University of Missouri, Kansas City Law School, and I was practicing law uh, for several years. And I just worked for myself, and I didn't have a whole lot to do. I was not, you know, just slam and bang, let's get every case we can and and work all the time, kind of a lawyer. And I I made a pretty, it was the best paying part-time job I had. But then I, (laughs) I started getting interested in, uh, uh, I guess in movies first in documentary movies and I did some documentary movies and, and then I, I I remember hearing listen to one podcast I started hearing about podcasts I'm an older guy but I always like to find out what's going on what's the latest especially in the tech world and the entertainment world and the mob entertainment world and I listened to a podcast I think it was called Serial and I thought well, I've given a lot of talks here in Kansas City, you know, the Rotary Club, the, the library, shown clips from my movie to groups, and, and I talk and about that. And I can see that people, they, they love that stuff, and, and they like good crime stories. And I listened to Serial, and I thought, well, you know, they're just telling a crime story here. And and I can tell a crime story. And so I started looking into what does it take to put up a podcast, and 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 you know it doesn't take a whole lot of, of big time uh, technical expertise. It doesn't take expensive equipment. Uh, mainly the investment is in the time and uh, researching and, and creating and uh, doing the stories and then editing and then putting it up. But other than that, I mean, it wasn't it, it kind of a low bar to get in. That's why there's so many of them out there, and that's why there's so many of them that come and go. Uh, and so Gary, you know, I said, you know, I'm going to try it. 
We don't give away any of our secrets about how easy this is, Gary. <laughs> last thing, last thing we need is more competition. What's the matter with you? Uh, but in all seriousness, uh, to your point, I think it was either the Wall Street Journal or the New York Times that did an article about the explosion of mob-related podcasts, not only from people in law enforcement like you, uh, but from people who have actually been mafia turncoats, folks like Sammy Gravano, for instance. Right. Why do you think there has been such an explosion in mafia-related podcasts while it seems like the actual mob and mob criminal activity, and we could talk about more about this later, seems to be in the decline. What is it about the public interest in this stuff that's feeding the beast of the constant stream of podcasts? You know, Frank, I, I have contemplated this very thing many times. I've discussed it with other people, with other cops, with a, a, a former mob associate that's a friend of mine here in Kansas City. And and the best I can come up with, there, there's a lot of interest, partly because of The Sopranos, because of the movie Casino, which, you know, I was in part of that case from the Kansas City end, but from those really popular culture events, or not events, but uh, uh, depictions of the mob and and people like that. They, I, I think we all like to think we might be able to be that guy that the rules don't apply to. And and I never have to, you know, really live in fear of anybody if I'm Tony Soprano or if I am Sammy the Bull Gravano or Michael Franchise to speak of in a couple of mob podcasters, but big time mob guys. And and so people I think we, we, we like to think that maybe that could be us. We and there's a certain we like ever since Jesse James uh, people, the public likes that successful criminal that seems to be a Robin Hood kind of a character, and you can go clear back to Robin Hood. And, and so I think we see today, we see a lot of these mob guys, Skinny Joe Merlino in Philadelphia, a lot of people see him as some kind of a, a, a mafia Robin Hood. Sammy the Bull, they saw him as a mafia Robin Hood. When he came out of witness protection, uh, even though he was uh, he was starting to get back in uh, in trouble selling narcotics down in Phoenix, he was like a minor celebrity down in Phoenix and wherever he went. I just was researching the story about that. And and so I, I think that's the, the popular, the, why it's so popular. We think of the mob, obviously you think of places like Italy, especially Sicily. It makes sense that there's a lot of mafia activity there because of uh, all the Italians that happen to be living in Italy. You think of Las Vegas as a city with a great mob history because of all the gambling and all the mob influence on the construction and the running of these casinos. And you think about places like New York where uh, the mob has exercised influence over uh, organized labor unions, gambling, all sorts of other things over the years. But a lot of folks may not uh, may not think of Kansas City as a natural place to be a hub of mob activity, but it was. Why was Kansas City such a central geographic location in the history of the American mob? I would say it was because at the turn of the century, when a lot of people from southern Italy and Sicily were coming over looking for jobs, they started, you know, they started filtering in in New York first, and then Chicago, and then Kansas City. If you look at it, Kansas City is kind of the furthest west of any city that has a real deal mob family. They have one out in L.A., but it's it's a little bit different. In Kansas City, you've got the old school family who's the our boss for years and years, Nick Savella. His dad was a Sicilian immigrant in the, around the turn of the century, and he came over and he had a couple of three boys, and and they all, you know, became members of the mafia and ended up running the Kansas City Mafia, and so it's just that that kind of uh, demographic shift of people, and when they came, they they brought the from southern Italy and Sicily, they brought their culture with them, and part of the culture was the mafia. So they just brought it with them, and, and this was as far west as uh, about as they got during that time, because this is where their jobs were. Uh, interesting thing is southeast, southwest Missouri or southeast Kansas. People kept asking me about, well, what about the mafia down there around Pittsburgh, Kansas, and uh, Springfield, Missouri, and Frontenac, Kansas, and and I, I'd say I don't know what you're talking about. And I finally went down there, and I, I 
I was researching the mob boss in Chicago, Joey Ayupa, and he got the nickname Joey Doves because he got caught with 500 doves that he had shot. He was a big hunter, and he shot him down in Frontenac, Kansas, down in this very rural area. I was down there, and I went to a little museum that was about the founding in the early days of, of that particular county, and I talked to the lady that ran it, and she said, well, they had strip mining, coal mining down there, 1910, 1915, 1920, and they needed workers. And somebody came over from Sicily and they, you know, sent letters back home, said, hey, there's work here. And so they started flooding in from Sicily. So that little area has this big population that all came, their roots all were back into Sicily. And they never really formed a mob there because it's hard to do in a rural area, but it certainly was mob friendly. Joy Aupa could go down there, the head of the outfit in Chicago could go, go down there and find friends and dove hunt and, and, and have a good time. And Kansas City mobsters went down there hunting quite a little bit, too. So that's uh, that's kind of, you know, the, that we, this western edge of the original mm-hmm. mafia is, is uh, that's gotcha. my explanation for it. No, it, make, it makes sense. It's as good as anything I've heard talking with Gary Jenkins. Gary, one of the things that I've learned in talking with uh, police officers here in New York, FBI agents, supervisory FBI agents, prosecutors, journalists, lawyers, even mobsters themselves, is that uh, one of the things that the in, in investigating mob cases in the New York area, there has been for decades a tremendous tension between local law enforcement and national law enforcement, the NYPD, um, you know, getting into it with the FBI and so forth in in more recent years, even the DEA uh, having territorial disputes with the NYPD. I'm curious in your experience as an investigator in mafia cases in Kansas city, was there that same sort of tension between the FBI and local law enforcement, or did those two agencies tend to work pretty well in concert? with one another we mostly worked really well in concert with the fbi if there was for example i saw some homicide detectives and there was a murder that the fbi wanted to get into and they there was a lot of conflict over that but in my squad in the intelligence unit that's all we did was work on the mob in kansas city and and locally we didn't have the resources or the manpower or the the legal tools that the FBI had access to. So for us to do anything, we had to do it in concert with the FBI. And the FBI locally had some good agents that understood that they could come to us, the intelligence unit, and get help with manpower. They could get help with, like, we knew people, you know, business people. We had relatives. We had people we could go to to find out about things that they maybe couldn't go to because all those guys were from, you know, they're from Cincinnati or Cleveland or New York or, you know, Los Angeles. They were from all over the United States. They didn't really know Kansas City. So one of the first steps that the the new agent assigned to the one squad or the organized crime squad, one of the first steps they were ordered to take was come over to the intelligence unit, introduce themselves and get to know people over there. So when they needed something, then they would have a good relationship with us and we would do it and and vice versa. So then, you know, when they needed some extra manpower, why they knew they could come to us and, and we would make sure that they got it. You mentioned some of those law enforcement tools that the FBI had access to that the local law enforcement agencies didn't necessarily have access to. I guess high on that list would be wiretaps. You actually wrote a book called Leaving Las Vegas, How FBI Wiretaps Ended Mob Domination of Las Vegas Casinos. I've talked a little bit about this with Oscar Goodman uh, from a defense attorney's perspective. He, of course, also later became the mayor of Las Vegas. But I'm, I'm wondering if you could sort of give us a thumbnail sketch of how exactly the FBI's use of wiretaps did end the mob domination of these Las Vegas casinos. Well, it started off with we had a little uh, inner uh, inner mob war. Uh, some a group of young Turks were wanting to to move in on the ruling family, the Sabella family, and, and they started stalking each other. And and one brother was killed. One of the Spiro brothers was killed, and and then another guy his he disappeared, and then they found his body, and it was uh, evidently he had been tortured. 
and then there was a bomb went off and, and it was kind of a it was like a a warning bomb and so we see this going on and and uh, like my unit we're out on the streets all the time we start seeing like some of the people from the Savella family prowling around the joints just driving around maybe running little surveillances like on some of the places that the Spiro brothers would be and so we're seeing this you know kind of stalking at each other and vice versa and, and we're kind of in the middle of this, and, and so the Bureau ends up, we'd had several bombings by this time. We'd had a couple, three murders, and, and they put a bug inside of a Savella headquarters restaurant. It's like in, in the movie Casino, they made it look like it was in a corner store, but it was actually in a little pizza restaurant run by Rossi Strada, and the Savellas <laughs> felt safe in there, and they knew him, knew the owner. He was from the neighborhood. So they put a, a bug in there, and they, they sat, always sat at the same table, a little backhead in the back, and they would meet people back there, and there was an informant that said they would have dirty conversations back there. So they they were hoping, the Bureau was hoping, and we were too, that they would pick up information about some of the plotting to kill these Sparrow brothers, and maybe we could either catch them in the act or, or make a case on them or, or be there when they showed up and they had guns in their car, and you could you know create, make that conspiracy. And they didn't hear anything about that. The only thing they heard was about Las Vegas and some guy named Genius and some guy named Lefty and uh, somebody being at the Stardust and cashing a big check and talking about the Teamsters and uh, $25 million. And, and this one, Cork Savala, said that our underboss, Tuffy Linda, well, are we in, in on that deal there? And they're talking <laughs> about the $25 million deal. And, of course, like, oh, my God, you know, they're talking about – Las Vegas. It, w- it was easy to discern. And so from then, we did a lockdown surveillance on Tuffy Luna because he ended that last conversation with, I got to find a phone. Because there was a, a payphone right there, but he didn't want to use that payphone. And so we had to find that phone ourselves. And we followed him enough with airplanes and 25 guys at a time and, and caught him at a bank of payphones that he started using. He was using regularly and he didn't know that we caught him at it. And they put wires on them, and, and all they heard was talk about, you know, uh, Las Vegas and what Lefty's doing and what uh, Glick's doing and is this casino for sale and is somebody in trouble there. Just gossip. Mainly it was gossip at the start, but it was pretty tantalizing gossip, and so they just stayed on that and kept picking up information, and finally were picking up, you know, that they were getting money or the Savella family was getting money from the Tropicana, and yet – that was not where Lefty Rosenthal was from, and by then they identified him, and he picked up there's a lot of animosity between a man named Joe Augusto and Lefty Rosenthal, and Joe Augusto was Savella's man who was in the Tropicana, and Lefty Rosenthal was Chicago's man, and he was in the Stardust. And so as you pick all that up, then you know, then they start making a case. Slowly but surely, they, they keep putting those conversations together, and in the end, Valentine's Day of, I uh, can't remember the year, all of a sudden now, uh, Valentine's Day, uh, we served search warrants, and they served them in, they, by then they identified Chicago and certain places in Chicago and Cleveland and Milwaukee, and it had figured out that they were all part of this big scheme to skim money out of Vegas and served search warrants on all of them, and as that started, they started rolling that case up, you know, to, to go to the shortened form of this. They realized that it was a Teamsters loan was the reason they were in these casinos so big is the mob had been able to influence $60 million loans, for example, to Alan Glick to buy the Stardust and three other casinos, I think the Fremont, the Marina, and the Hacienda. And so, you know, they've got all this influence over the Teamsters that's coming out of this. And and during that time, of course, the the U.S. Department of Labor is looking at the Teamsters. And and, and when you can show that much mob influence over the Teamsters Union, especially using that uh, pension fund as almost like their personal bank, Uh because what they do is is they they could get – they had enough trustees to get them to vote on any loan that they wanted the guy to have, but then that guy – had to kick back, and the way they kicked back was let somebody like Tuff or like uh, Lefty Rosenthal have a position in the casino where he could skim money 
out and then send that back to the mob. That's how Alan Glick was paying a bag for their influence on getting getting that loan. So the Department of Labor, in, in the end, they declared they put the the Teamsters Union in trusteeship and ordered new elections and uh, and started kicking out all the people that had mob connections. And it, it really it took the Teamsters Union away from the mob. It took the casinos away from the mob. This really fired up the gaming commission out there in Las Vegas and Nevada, of course. And so, you know, taking influence over the International Brotherhood of Teamsters and all the casino money that they were getting, that was that was like the end of the mob in the Midwest, basically. A little bit left in Chicago, I think, just a little bit in Kansas City. But uh, but when they lost that, they just lost so much. They, they had to go sure. back to running scams and, and you know, corner dice games and stuff. <laughs> so if you go to a Las Vegas casino today, you don't necessarily have to worry that your loss at the blackjack table is funding organized crime. <laughs> no, no. You know, a lot of people would say they wish the mob were back because it was safer in Las Vegas back the, in those well, days. I, I, but I think that's wishful I, thinking. <laughs> yeah, yeah. No, I have heard that. But uh, I think I think we tend to romanticize everything uh, through the prism yeah. of nostalgia. One of the reasons that I was eager to talk with you is not only because of your law enforcement background and because you're an expert in so many cases, but because of your legal background as well. One of the things that I hear so often from defense attorneys and from uh, criminal defendants alike is that the FBI and law enforcement in general has a tendency to overstep, sometimes break their own rules, sometimes uh, bend the rules, sometimes ignore civil liberties, all in the name of getting an arrest or getting a conviction. From what you've observed, either firsthand or from research that you've done on other cases, do you think any of that is true? Does law enforcement, especially at a national level, have a tendency to overstep? I never saw it. As a matter of fact, they were too conservative if you ask me, but I was, you know, I was like 30 years old and back in those days when I was really mm-hmm. working with them and, and I wanted the glory. <laughs> I wanted to make the big one and whatever that took when you got, if you got young policemen out there, young agents, individuals that are really individually and they're really ambitious, but the organization as a whole is ruled by cooler heads and they just, they have a lot of checks and balances and, and police departments do too. And then they did back then. I mean, if we'd have got caught doing some of the things we contemplated doing, you know, trying to throw a, a gypsy wire, as they call it, a, a, you know, unauthorized wiretap on somebody, they'd have fried us, uh, the, the, our, our local department. And, uh, you know, I thought about it myself, but, you know, it was just like, I didn't really, it wouldn't work my job as <laughs> they would have, uh, so, sure. you know, in my experience now, now there are individuals that do stuff like that and, and, in you know, big Eastern cities, uh, no offense to you, New Yorkers or Chicago people, but there's, you know, got a lot more people and a lot bigger departments and a lot more buried people and, and things like that do happen, but. But in Kansas City, we just, I don't know, we're just like small town guys in a way. We, we just <laughs> didn't do that kind of stuff. You host, I believe, an annual mob film festival out there in Kansas City. Tell me about that. How long you've been doing that and what kind of films do you show at this mob film festival? Well, right now, after COVID, the mob film festival, we've got to regroup, but what, what we started off with, there's another man locally, Terrence O'Malley, who uh, did a kind of a, a, an overview. It was about a two-and-a-half-hour movie documentary, an overview of organized crime in Kansas City called Black Hand Strawman. And it goes all the way back to when the Black Hand first got here in Kansas City and, and, and real comprehensive overview. And so that was kind of always our anchor film. And, and then I had my two film uh, uh I got a third one now, but I had two films that I would throw in there, Gangland Wire about the casino and uh, skimming from the casino in the Kansas City investigation. And then uh, Brothers Against Brothers, uh, the Savella Sparrow War, which was just about this uh, mob war between factions in Kansas City that went on at the same time that that the uh, Bureau was really working heavy on the uh, Las Vegas end of it that had nothing to do with this mob war. So we've got those two, and and we we've got I've got a couple of guys that that were involved back then. So I'll get them to come, and we'll do a question and answer kind of a a, a panel discussion and question and answer thing for the audience uh, on each day of it, and we just 
changed the movies out, and and we did it three years in a row. <laughs> we, you know, we the first two years we sold out, had people we had to turn people away, and then the last year we did it just before COVID. It was we didn't have any fresh movies about Kansas City, and and we we had had one last fresh movie that I did about an election theft in 1946, 48, 46 election, but they didn't investigate it till 48, and mob was involved in it. And, and so then the COVID hit, and we haven't done it since. You, um, you know, I want to uh, talk about your documentaries in a second, but if you had to pick, because I get asked this question all the time, it's one of my favorite questions to ask guests, a mafia motion picture that is uh, the most realistic. In your experience, what would you say it is? <laughs> one. I, I, when I, there's kind of like there's two different sections of the mob. The Godfather's good for the big section, you know, the overall, mm-hmm. all the tradition and that kind of thing movie that, that was pretty realistic, I think, but for the, on the street level, which I always like, and I try to deal with as much as I can on the podcast, how do these, who does these things and how do they do them and what happens when they do them on the street level, not the boss, not even the underboss for the most part, those guys get mentions, but uh, Goodfellas was probably the best depiction of mm-hmm. a crew that I've ever seen and their, their relationship with the maid guys and with street guys and, and uh, the, the family that they're connected to as a whole and what they do on a day-to-day basis. I thought that was the very best one of those. Your documentary, your first mob documentary, Gangland Wire, features FBI agents, police officers, reporters. I haven't seen it yet, but I'm looking forward to seeing it. Uh, tell me tell me about the Kansas City mob war that was at the heart of this documentary, Gangland Wire. Did that come – is that the, uh, the Savella Spiro incident that you alluded to earlier, or was that something else? <laughs> Well, Frank, this gets complicated. It's everything when it comes to investigating the mob. That's one reason that it's not really for the general public, I think, sometimes, is there's so many names and so many machinations and so many scams and schemes that are going on. But I'll shorten this up. We had a, a new development going in close to downtown. They were taking old buildings and fixing them up and make, and make it into an entertainment district, and it was rocking and rolling. It was popping. People were all of us baby boomers were in our twenty late twenties, early thirties, and this, there were singles lounges there, and and there was a bunch of mob guys that had strip joints, and they were all being booted out because of some urban renewal. So they wanted to move down into this area, and there was a, a mob guy's son that was a square John, and and he was resisting them coming down, trying to resist them getting liquor licenses. He'd go to liquor control and sub Rosa behind their backs, and he'd say, you don't want this guy. You don't want that guy. I don't care whose name they got on the license. That's not who's got this joint. And they found out about it, and they ended up killing his father and, and ended up, he left town. He he, he went into hiding, and, and he actually came back and testified against a couple of them, a couple of brothers, the Comisano brothers, and got them convicted of extortion. They were trying to extort money from him during this. And so that that whole area just it just blew apart. It was called the River Key, and it just all of a sudden it was like a ghost town down there because of all the bad publicity. And there's a couple of buildings that are blown up. I think they're for insurance uh, actually, but people thought it was part of a mob war. Well, the real mob war was going on a long ways, not a long ways, but blocks and blocks away from there on what we call the east side. And that was between the brothers. So this this other mob war was going on as at the end of this first little kind of a skirmish between the Savellas and and the Comisanos who were, you know, really kind of main. Uh, they had a big crew. The Comisanos had a big crew that worked under Nick Savella and really did all of took took care of all the boosting and and the fencing and uh, narcotics and about all the really kind of street stuff and. And so the Spiro brothers, they were involved in fencing. The Spiro brothers, they were involved in fencing and the boosters, uh, trading narcotics to boosters for boosted clothes and, and then turn around and sell them back down to another guy who was at an uh, an outlet. And, and they 
were trying to move in on the Sabellas. They had heard about this Teamsters uh, loans, the casinos. They'd heard about this casino money coming in. They wanted one of the brothers to be given a big-time Teamsters union job here in Kansas City, and Nick Savella, the boss, wouldn't do it. He wouldn't split anything with them. He wouldn't allow any of them to have anything to do with any of the action that he controlled, any of the games, any of the sports book, anything. He he just kept them pushed out, and there was three brothers left, and they were all professional criminals. And and so – you know they're out there and they start plotting because they, they he Nick Sabella had approved of the murder of their oldest brother. So you got three brothers left, and it was uh, I mean it was just a constant stalking between those two sides there, and it just went on for months. And they uh, oh, listen, I mean I'm trying to think of the first one they caught the 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 Sabella family learned that the three Spiral brothers were all together at one time at this one tavern, the, the Virginian that they all hung out at, and they were close to the owner. And so they sent a crew down. They must have already had the guns and the car and everything ready. Uh, they sent a crew down, and they went in the back door, and two of the brothers were sitting at a table, and the other brother was up by the front door on the payphone. And, and they, two of the guys, I think three, I think it was three guys went in, and Two of them spun to the left and went after the two Spiro brothers, Mike and Joe, that were sitting there and just started shooting them. And Carl Spiro, the youngest brother, he ran out the front door, and, and the third man that came in with the mask on had a shotgun, and he ran out onto Admiral Boulevard. It was like a four-lane wide boulevard, but it was in the evening. There wasn't much traffic, and he popped him just as he got across to Admiral Boulevard and, and he paralyzed him. He was crippled uh, from the waist down the rest of his life. They killed Mike, one of those Spiral brothers, and just wounded Joe. And So, boy, it's on after that. I mean, that the gloves are off. There's no more nicey-nice stuff after that. They had oh, yeah. they tried to kind of like had a little sit-down once and and it didn't, you know, everybody, each side, you know, Sabellas and Sparrow said, oh, we're not mad at you. And Sabella said, oh, yeah, we're not mad at you. You know, all is good. But that wasn't true. Uh, so, you know, it was just on after that. And they were stalking them and we were catching them, stalking them. They'd like, uh, like I, I stumbled into it one time. I was, actually, there were three of us. And uh, we saw them circling around this tavern where this Carl Spiro was. And, and he, after he got back out of the hospital, he got hand controls on his Cadillac, and he just kept operating until he finally died. And they got him with a bomb a few years later. But he was operating, and, and they were driving around and around this tavern. And then they disappeared, and we were on the surveillance. And, and so we just pulled back and we sat and watched. And, and about 15, 20 minutes later, another car that we didn't recognize with three heads in it starts circling around the tavern. We said, oh, we better go down and check this. And so I remember I drove down by the tavern. I came out on the street in front of it. They came up behind me and, and, and they just kept following me. So I just went up a block or two and then turned south and went about five blocks south. They just stayed behind me. And I like, got my radio down my lap. I said, hey, that looks like Duffy DeLuna, that passenger of that car. Somebody called the uniform police over there. Call the real police because they're wearing like blue jeans and T-shirts and slick cars. <laughs> so I pulled up to a stoplight. And I, I just, as a light changed, they pulled up to my left. And as a light changed... I was committed to go straight, so I started to go straight, and I kind of glanced over, and I could see that was Tuffy DeLuna, the underboss, as a passenger, and he saw me look over, and he just gave me about a half a grin, and when they turned left, they just laid into it, and we never saw them again, but, so, you know, they were, <laughs> they were, that was going on, and they just kept, oh, see, they, Joe, Joe Sparrow, he got involved in a plot, he, he Carl Sparrow got a, another guy to make a remote deck detonated bomb and Joe put it underneath Tuffy's car one night. We had an informant in with his Joe Sparrow's little crew. That's what my second movie's all about is that. And and this was actually a, a Kansas City police operation here because they had the informant and the bureau wasn't really involved. ATF was kind of helping uh, just in case we came up with, with a bomb and, and Joe Sparrow 
put this bomb inside of a brown paper sack and then put it underneath Tuffy's car sitting out in front of that original bar, the Villa Capri, while he was inside smoking and joking with his buddies. And and so when he comes out, Joe's sitting down or standing down the street in the uh, doorway of another building that's a closed uh, building, and and he starts punching the button, and it won't go off. And Tuffy drives off, and there's the paper sack with a bomb in it sitting there. So they go retrieve it and bring it back, and they figure out the, the antenna wasn't long enough for it to uh, send the signal that far. And so they put a longer antenna on it. Well, we got an informant that's frantically calling the detective that is his control. And, you know, you got to get me out of this. These guys are crazy. Here's what happened last night. I didn't know it was going to happen until I got down there, and then they did all this. I got to go out and help him test that bomb today. And so then, then upper management said, we just got to take them off. And, and we got search warrants for their houses and businesses. There's about three houses and another business. And, and, and then they had this stolen car that was hidden down at a, uh, down at a uh, truck line and just in the employee's parking lot. And that's, we found out later that's where the bomb was. You have a funny story. They, uh, Clark Hamilton and, and this other guy were in a van, a surveillance van sitting right next to the stolen car. And they got out and they put a beeper on the car, an electronic tracking device. Well, but we didn't know it, but the bomb was inside that, which was an electronic device that could be keyed by a signal. Oh, my. <laughs> so they're sitting all night next to this bomb with, with a tracking device, sending out a signal underneath the car, and then a bomb that would be activated by a signal. But luckily, the tracking device signal was different than the bomb uh, receiving uh, uh, triggers signal. And then we took them all off the next day. And, and so that was over. And that just left Carl Sparrow. And, and in the meantime, the, uh, the straw man, the skim cases are all coming down. We've searched the search warrants. They've all got more trouble than Carl Spiro, the last Spiro left. And he's, he's just operating. He's got something, a used car lot that's a front and he's trading the narcotics delighted for stolen property and, and just doing that kind of thing, helping set up burglaries and then dealing with the stolen property from the burglaries. And, and uh, we, we actually then put another got an informant, put a state trooper, brought him in from out of state and mm. put him with the, the informant. And then he started dealing, making hand to hand buys with Carl Sparrow. And they were all ready to make a case. When he came down there one morning to open up, he had a little shack on this car lot. And he opened it up and got in there and he sat down and he got on the phone to call his uh, sister-in-law, the brother of one or wife of one of his murdered brothers. And, and about the time she got on the phone with him, the phone went dead is what she testified later. And uh, that, that little shack blew him clear up out of the top, his wheelchair and dumped him out in the parking lot. It was, it was, uh, it was overkill. We'd already had one. They'd already discovered one bomb that was overkill. It was like 28 sticks of dynamite up underneath his car at his house, and they had a mercury switch on it. So any jostling of the car would have set that 28 sticks of dynamite off. And the ATF agent that was up there at that, at that scene said, you know, that would have taken out about half that house as well as his car. And uh, so it was, uh, it was a crazy time. Oh, that that is for sure. That last Spiro brother was killed. That was the end of it. With crime running rampant in New York, you need to keep yourself and your family safe. Obtaining your concealed carry firearm licenses can be difficult and time-consuming. That's where MyFirstPistol.com comes in. They'll help you secure your concealed carry license. If you're looking for a pistol, premise, rifle, or shotgun license, call 347-559-7052. 347-559-7052. You must have a valid firearm license issued by the NYPD to purchase, possess, or shoot a handgun or pistol in NYPD. I see. You you mentioned some the straw man investigation. If people aren't familiar with that term, uh, that basically was the investigation that broke up the Kansas City mob's connection to Las Vegas. When you were uh, talking about the, the the wiretaps earlier regarding the Tropicana and Lefty, uh, that's the audio of the wiretaps that we played earlier. That's all part of the straw man investigation. It sounds like a fascinating documentary. I can't wait to see it. How can people see that, Gary? Well, uh, Gangland Wire and Brothers Against Brothers are both on Amazon Prime. Great. Uh, I will check it out. Yeah, I'm hoping it's for free. Is it free or do I have to give you $2? Uh, it's $1.99. You, you look for the <laughs> SD version, folks. Uh, yeah. 
I only get a buck off of that, though. If you get the the HD version, uh, I get a little bit more. It's two ninety nine. <laughs> Fair enough. I may have to splurge for the uh, for the two ninety nine version. <laughs> you, you alluded a, a little earlier in our conversation. You alluded to a mob associate that uh, you know that you have gotten kind of friendly with. One of the things that we've seen in a lot of organized crime cases, whether it's uh, Greg Scarpa, whether it's James Whitey Bulger or scores of other cases, is sometimes law enforcement uh, tends to get in trouble when an FBI handler tends to get a little too close to the person that they're servicing, that the per- their informant that's giving them information. How big of a problem is that from what you've seen? And have you ever uh, had an occasion to either, while you were investigating or after, befriend someone who was started out as a criminal target well it's it's always a danger there's guys there's there's professional criminals out there that are uh, that have really good personalities that are, are you know really fun guys and especially if you start drinking with them a little bit and I had one myself, and sometimes when I left, that dude, I don't know. I think he learned more than I did because he was always <laughs> probing, trying to find out something. And he'd give up a little bit, but he was always probing. And, and I know for a fact there's an FBI that I actually turned him over to an FBI agent. And uh, uh, I, I was I was kind of like done with him. I was getting ready to leave the unit. I was going to get promoted. and. And uh, I could kind of see, you know, I, I saw where this was going with this guy. He was dangerous, and and he was, uh, you know, he he could easily get you in trouble, and he would he didn't care about you. And, and I know an FBI agent that that he started talking to, and and uh, the agent ended up leaving town. There was there was some kind of little bit of scandal, and I'm not sure what it was. It wasn't any real, you know, bad criminal stuff, but but. There was a little bit of a scandal because they came. They sent two agents out and they interviewed me about this guy. Well, nobody mm. wanted to give you stuff. He's the kind of guy you'd say, well, "That's a nice leather coat you got, dude." And he'd say, "You want one? I got three or four more just like it at home." Because <laughs> he dealt with all these boosters and uh, uh, drug addicts and stuff that were stealing things like that. So you know, he was that kind of guy. You know, I, was with, I got in his car with him, go somewhere once, and I'd go take a look at something he was telling me about. And I and he, you know, he indicated before we got done that that was a stolen car we were riding in, you know, because he's always trying to suck in, and and that's you know I followed that Whitey Bulger, uh, John Connolly thing, and and Greg mm-hmm. uh, uh, Scarpa, uh, Dovecchio, Lynn Vecchio thing, and and kind of looked at that, and I I see how that happens. I mean, you just got to eternally stay on your toes using those guys. And especially when they act like you're their friend. Sure. Just, sure. You just can't go down that, that path. This, uh, this friend I, 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 today, I mean, we don't care about it now, but back then right. I, I saw it happen. I have to think it, it's a very delicate balance because you want to have enough of a rapport with, with him that he gives you information, but you don't want to get too close because, you know, after all, you're not part of the gang. Yeah, I know it's uh, <laughs> it's a little hard to explain the mindset you get into when you're working cases like that. But sometimes the the uh, the overall the big picture, if you can be part of taking down the big guy, be the big guy with the big clue and the big picture, you might take some risk on the lower end that you probably shouldn't have taken in order to try to trick. Cause it's, it, you know, it ends up being kind of a trade out for information for these guys. They want to know. And if you I don't, when I you know. don't have something on them now, other informants that you've got a hammer on, you've got a case over holding over their head. That's a different deal. But these guys that you don't have a case on and they come in and they befriend you and you befriend them, or you think you're friends. You're not really friends. Tell me about the Kansas City Mob Tour app that you developed. What exactly is this, and do I have to be a, um, a a resident or a visitor of Kansas City to enjoy it? Can I enjoy it sitting here in New York? Well, you you can uh, you can yeah yeah you, you just go to the uh, uh, app store uh, Apple App Store. It's not on Google. I can't explain that, but 
but it's, it's on the Apple App Store. And I just, you know, it was a deal that I developed that, you know, that anybody can get one for, I don't know, $1.99 or something. And I put in different mob sites with maps and pictures and tell a little story about this is what happened here. So you can just click on different sites in Kansas City or different names and, and go find out more information just, you know, with your iPhone. It, that sounds uh, sounds great. So again, it's called the Kansas City Mob Tour app, available yeah. on uh, on Apple. For folks yeah. that are wondering if they are planning a uh, trip to Kansas City, whether they're going to see the uh, the Chiefs play or they're uh, going to uh, see some of the sites that they've learned about in the Mob Tour app, how is the Italian food in Kansas City? I have <laughs> to think, with such a maf- mafia presence for so long, it must be pretty decent. What's your review? You know, my review is great. Uh, it's uh, we've got kind of a, a, a one right down in the Columbus Park or, or the old original Little Italy or North End as they called it. Uh, all of a sudden, kind of sudden, I just lost the name of it. But there's one right down there, and then there's a really good one up just north of the river. And uh, there's Anthony's, which is kind of close to downtown, which is old school. You feel like you walk back into a 50s Italian restaurant bar. And, I love uh, it. And local people go there primarily, and neighborhood people go there. And, and Ograzzo's, that's, that's kind of a higher-end dining that's down in uh, down right in Little Italy. So there's three Make- really, really good ones that are old school restaurants. Gary, very important question. Missouri or Missouri? <laughs> well, they say it's where you're from sometimes. Uh, uh, I, I would say Missouri. Uh, most people from the country say Missouri. <laughs> gotcha. Okay. I appreciate you. So they're both, I guess, correct, right? They're, they're both correct. Um, one of the stories that you've that you've told in um, some of your books, and I believe at least one of the documentaries, is the story of being mistaken for a hitman. How does that come to be? <laughs> you know, that, that is a good story. I mean, that's kind of what they were thinking when they were following me that day. But there's another one with the Spiros. Uh, and this guy chased, chased me. And what he was trying to do is see who I was that was running surveillance on Carl Spiro. And I saw him like he came out of the little car lot. He looked up the hill where I was a couple blocks off. And I don't know, he, he's an idiot. He really didn't, didn't want to, if I was a hitman, he didn't really want to catch me, I don't think. And I found out later that he didn't want to catch me. He didn't know what he was going to do if he had that, but he jumped in his car and headed that way. And so I thought, ah, I see what he's doing. So I could sit there and just put my badge on him and he'd say, oh, all right, and go back. Or I thought, oh, well, I'd just have a little fun. I just took off northbound and kind of at a high rate of speed and he got up about three cars behind me and there's enough traffic that I could keep him behind me until I got to a red light and I was in the, the front and I just ran the red light and he was trapped back there. So I, and I was able to hit the freeway right outside of about two blocks down the street and I never saw him again. And, and, and a funny story, the funny you should ask about that is a, a good friend of mine, a huge podcast fan and, and mob fan here in Kansas city was just buying a used car and he calls me after he gets done, and he says, you know that guy that chased you? He said, did he have a 240Z? And, a, and, and it all came flooding back to me. He did have a Z. Uh, uh, those were pretty popular back there in the 70s. And, and I said, yeah, he did. As a matter of fact, he said, well, I just talked to him. His name's Koozie, and he, the Koozies are a uh, a uh, cousin to the Spiro, so that would that would all make sense. He said, yeah, he said he remembered chasing that guy that day. He said, I don't know what I was going to do if I caught him, but I thought he was somebody that was, you know, doing a surveillance trying to kill his cousin, Carl Spiro. Uh, that's some story. Jeez, talk about uh, a mistaken identity which could go uh, horribly wrong. I'll make this my last question because you've already been so generous with your time, uh, but I could talk with you for hours, and I hope you'll come back, and I hope people do check out your your podcast. But there, um, one of the people that you've blogged about and I think done a couple of podcast episodes about is Sam Momo Giancana and his relationship with the Rat Pack. Now, Sam Giancana's name does tend to pop up a 
awful lot in discussing uh, the Kennedys, either the election of 1960 and the role that uh, organized crime may have played in getting a few extra votes for John F. Kennedy that he might not have been entitled to, and even the uh, Kennedy assassination in 1963. Based on your research and the people that you've spoken to, what influence do you think organized crime played, if any, in uh, the Kennedy assassination? Oh, boy. <laughs> you know, uh, my my opinion on that from everything I've read, and you can get the opinions about that are all across the board, of course, is that Sam Giancana and Johnny Roselli, they did meet with, was it Robert Mayhew was the guy's name, was a former FBI agent and knew uh, knew them because he was uh, Howard Hughes' kind of fixer and everything out in Las Vegas. So he would have known Giancana and Roselli because they both had a lot of Vegas uh, friends and connections and relationships. And, and so I believe that they met. And I believe that they said, yeah, we'll see what we can do about Castro. We'd like to get Castro out there, too, so we can get our casinos mm. back down there. But I, I don't think they really did anything more than take some money and, and try to use. You know, that's one of those deals where you trade off. Uh, they do something for the government, and the they want the government to do something for you, just what I was talking about earlier. That, that's how they operate. It's, and they don't want to give you anything, but they want to get something. They want to get some kind of insight and some kind of help somewhere down the line from the government and to them the cia was a government of course and cia could have helped them in a court case or getting something done in some other you know some casino in some other caribbean country they could have helped them out with that but i think i i think that they really didn't intend on doing that i think that was kind of like over there out of their mm-hmm. uh, i think their reach would expand go way beyond their actual grasp to go down into Cuba and try to get something done after Castro had, had taken over everything down there and had the police and, and kicked everybody out. Uh, I think sure. it was just, I, I think it was beyond their capabilities, but they weren't above acting like they were going to do something. So it makes sure. a pretty good story. And, and that's my opinion on that. Gary Jenkins, no better storyteller related to the mob than him. Do check out his podcast, Gangland Wire Crime Stories. Do check out the Kansas City Mob Tour. And if you're willing to spring for the $2.99 HD version, be sure to check out his documentaries on Amazon Prime. Gary, it has been a real treat to talk with you. I hope we can do it again soon. Okay, Frank. It's been fun. Thank you. If someone sent you this podcast, do us a favor and subscribe. Search for The Racket Report on iTunes, on Google Podcasts, Spotify, wherever you get your podcasts, and you will get this podcast downloaded to your phone each and every time we post a new episode. Until the next time we meet in cyberspace, I'll see you on the radio.